Uh, will you turn in your Bibles to the portion of Scripture that we read together in Luke chapter 20 as we continue uh, our studies, pick up our studies and continue them in uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 20. In his novel, The Virginian, Owen Weister wrote, a middling doctor is a poor thing. A middling lawyer is a poor thing. But keep me from a middling man of God. And the professing Christian church over the centuries has been plagued and blighted with middling men of God. Religious charlatans who take up a position of leadership among the people of God out of self-interest. Position, power, and pounds are the three things that drive them and the three things that motivate them. And we don't have to look far too far in today's church to see these charlatans at work. Religious professionals who are more interested in your credit card than in your Christian commitment and in their position before you than in your position before God. Now, that kind of person is not a new phenomenon. During the ministry of our Lord, He continually confronted uh, and challenged such people, in fact, condemned them. In our studies in Luke, we come to the end of chapter 20, and Jesus, with a boldness and a directness that is shocking and startling, rounds on the religious hypocrites of his day. Look at verse 46. He says, Beware of the scribes, or beware, as the NIV says, of the teachers of the law. The scribes, uh, the, those who were responsible for copying out and preserving the law of God. And in one sense, we owe these men a great uh, debt, because in days before the printing press, uh, the manuscripts were all handwritten, and these scribes, these teachers of the law, were meticulously careful in copying out uh, the Word of God to preserve it from one generation to the next. And it wasn't unknown that if they made a mistake in copying out uh, the law of God or the Word of God, they would scrap that whole parchment rather than introduce error into the text. And textual scholars are amazed that the manuscripts that originally were used for translation, when they found and identified these older manuscripts and they compared them centuries older than the ones that were used to translate the authorized version, they were practically the same. They were free from error. And that's why we can be so confident when it comes to the text of our Bibles that they are an accurate record of what was originally revealed because the scribes were so careful and copying out Scripture for one gener from one generation to the next. But these men not only were professional copyists who copied the law, but they were also considered to be experts uh, or teachers of the law. Because they spent their life copying out the Scripture, they became uh, experts in its content and often were called upon to give their interpretation of the law. You remember when the wise men, the Magi, ar arrived at Jerusalem, Herod sent for the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the scribes, to identify where the Christ would be born. Now, in the authorized version, the ESV, they're called scribes, and the NIV, they're called teachers of the law, because, in fact, they were a bit of both. They copied out the Scripture, and they taught the Scripture. But here Jesus, directly 
and explicitly warns his listeners, beware of the scribes. You remember in our study last week, Jesus, by quoting the Old Testament, had sad, uh, silenced the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in, in the resurrection, in life after death, and Jesus proves conclusively from the portion of Scripture that the Sadducees would have um, held as authoritative, he proves to everyone listening and to the Sadducees that, uh, that there was life after death. And for once, these scribes and these teachers of the law were uh, uh, convinced that uh, Jesus had spoken uh, the right thing. Look at verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They were delighted to see Jesus deliver this body blow to the theology of the Sadducees. Bravo! Amen! Well said, Jesus. That'll show them. That'll teach them. That'll shut them up. Did Jesus detect a little arrogance, a little sense of superiority, a, a, a a chest inflating uh, with, with ego as uh, he uh, uh, spoke these words and as they responded to these words? Or was it that Jesus was concerned that these scribes in condemning others were not considering their own spiritual state and their own spiritual feelings? It's always easier, you see, to take the speck out of somebody else's eye than to take the plank out of your own. So Jesus gives this dark warning. Beware of the scribes. Beware of the teachers of the law. And he explains why his listeners ought to exercise caution when it comes to these religious professionals. And in describing them, he gives us some very helpful indicators, signposts that help us in our generation to detect uh, religious Charlotte. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. They're simply indicators. They're simply symptoms. They're, they're signs of a, a religious imposter. He says they have a defective theology. They lack humility. They uh, uh, are devoid of integrity, and they perform hypocritically. So, first of all, the first identifying mark, then, of a, a religious fraudster, a religious charlatan, is that they have a defective theology. Look at verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Jesus is addressing the crowd, the crowd that had gathered to hear the, these exchanges between him and the religious leaders. And the last group to speak were these scribes, these teachers of the law. Um, Teacher, they say, you have spoken well. And you can almost see Jesus pointing at them and saying, how can you say that the Christ is David's son? Because that's exactly, you see, what these teachers, what these scribes said, that the Christ, when he would come, he would be a son, a descendant of David. And of course, they were absolutely right on that. The Old Testament taught that the Christ, the Messiah, when he would come, he would be a son of David. He would be a descendant of David. He would be David's greater son. That was the promise that was given uh, to David in Second Samuel chapter 7, that God would establish David's throne forever. And that's what the scribes taught. That's what the scribes believed, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. 
But that's all they believed, you see. Um, Israel would be delivered when the Messiah came from her enemies. Uh, This Messiah would be established uh, into a place of power, and from Jerusalem he would rule the world. He would be a great man. He most certainly would be a godly man. But that's all he would be. He would only be a man. Now, Jesus doesn't deny that the Messiah would be a son of David because he himself was descended from David. He was a son of David by blood from Mary's line, and he was a son of David uh, through Joseph by adoption. No one could deny that. And interestingly enough, no one did deny it. The scribes kept um, careful genealogical records Uh, with great care. And they were kept at the temple, and it was only when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 that these uh, uh, genealogies were were lost. And if he wasn't a descendant of David, uh, this would have been waved in his face. We have our records. We know that you're not related to David. We know that you're not a son of David, so you can't be the Messiah. The fact that his enemies said nothing when even someone like Bartimaeus cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me, proves that he was descended from David. But Jesus goes on to show that the Christ would not only be a son of David, he would be more. Look at verse 42. For David himself was uh, uh, himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So high is he his son. This is a quote from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that speaks of the coming of the Messiah. It is the most frequently quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. It was regarded by the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day as messianic. But Jesus says, how is it that in that psalm, that messianic psalm, David calls his son, his own son, my Lord? David himself describes in the book of the Psalms that the the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, this is startling because no Middle Eastern um, father father would have ever addressed his son as Lord. It was unheard of. Remember when Um, the family went up to Egypt and greeted Joseph. The brothers called Joseph Lord, but but Jacob never calls him Lord. But the psalm goes further. The one who David calls Lord is invited to sit at God's right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool. The right hand was the place of honor, the place of glory, the place of equality. And here David's son is not only David's Lord, he calls him Lord, but he is given the highest place that heaven affords. And God himself brings all his enemies under his feet. It's a picture of unparalleled honor, majesty, supremacy, and glory. Now, do you see Jesus' point? If David calls him Lord, 
and he is exalted to the right hand of God, then the the Christ is not simply a great man. He's not simply a a godly man, but he is the God-man. He is not simply David's son. He is the root of David. He is the one from uh, whom David uh, derives his very existence. He is the root of, of, of David, the source of David. This is what theologians call double generation. He is from David in human history, but he is from God in eternity. He is God of very God. Douglas Millen says, Jesus is everything we are apart from sinfulness. And he is everything that God is apart from personality. Now, do you see the the problem with these scribes? They studied the Scriptures, but they didn't see the truth of Scripture. One commentator says they were wallowing in academic ignorance. They knew the Scriptures. They knew this psalm but they didn't put the dots together in their mind. The main point of the psalm as to the identity of the Messiah being David's God was lost on them. Beware of people who are so absorbed with detail and the secondary and highlighting the obtuse um, and the obscure that they miss the greater and more essential truths. Alistair Begg, the recurring phrase, if you ever listen to his sermons, is the, main th- the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. It's the, like the person I was talking to before lockdown who wanted to argue with me that Christians shouldn't eat pork, and he denied the Trinity. And I'm thinking to myself, I couldn't get him off the subject. All he wanted to discuss was sausages. And he had a defective view of the Trinity. That type of thing is the mark of a religious imposter. But there's something more fundamental here. These people were wrong on the identity and divinity of Christ. They believed he was a man, but only a man. In in Matthew's account of this incident, Jesus introduces the passage by asking the question, what do you think of the Christ? Or as the authorized version has it, what think ye of Christ? And the answer to that question is crucial because most heretics have a defective view of Jesus. The the Mormons, the Muslims, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Scientologists, the Christian scientists, that's an oxymoron if ever there was one because they're neither Christian nor scientists. The Christadelphians, even the liberals, the first thing that they deny is the deity of Jesus. What think ye of Christ is a crucial searching and sifting question. If they're wrong on Christ, they are wrong on everything. You know, when Mel Gibson's um, uh, film was released, The Passion of the Christ, it was also released in the Middle East, um, but there was an Islamic, a Muslim version of it, and it's almost identical to Mel Gibson's original film, apart from the ending when Judas is crucified instead of Jesus, which is the way that Muslims understand the cross. But all the rest is there. The miracles, walking on water, turning water into wine, healing the sick, even raising the dead, his wise sayings, 
his uh, teaching, it's all there. But at one point, a man runs up to Jesus and falls at his feet and calls him Lord. And Jesus rebukes him and says, don't get up. I don't stay down, sorry. Uh, I, 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 I'm not God. I'm only a man. And that's the Islamic Jesus. And that's the defective Jesus. What think ye of Christ? That is a crucial question, and it's a necessary question. So religious imposters, these charlatans, these heretics, can be, a defend, uh, can be identified by a defective theology. We need to ask what they believe, and crucially, what do they believe about Jesus Christ? Now, to test the theology, to weigh a theology, you need a theology. You need to know what you believe. And that's not popular today. People would rather feel than think in the 21st century church. Doctrine is dry. Doctrine is dusty. Doctrine is divisive. But Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. It's the devil who wants to toss us about with every wind of doctrine and the cunningness and craftiness of men. Doctrinal instability is a fruit of the devil's activity. So when I turned to the God channel and I listened to Benny Hinn, uh, I set aside all the claims, all the miracles, all the gifts, and I asked myself, well, what does he believe? Now, that man believes in a seven-person Godhead, that there are seven persons. I was going to say there's seven, seven persons in the Trinity, but seven persons in the Godhead. And Scripture warns us not to suspend our critical faculties. Just turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to the portion on spiritual gifts. I think this is, is, is important. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1, and often neglected. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Why does he not want them to be uninformed? Because lack of thinking was the mark of paganism from which they were converted out of. He wants them to use their minds. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. You, you didn't think it was sensations. It was how you felt. Therefore, I want you, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, anybody can say Jesus is Lord, but Paul is saying it's the theology that stands behind that. What do they say about Christ? If they're off in Christ, if they don't submit to the lordship of Christ and the demands of Christ and, uh, and, and have the correct view of Christ, don't get swept away. Don't suspend your critical faculties. Use your head, as they would say in Glasgow. Use your, your mind. So a religious fraud has a defective theology. Secondly, they lack humility. Look at verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long uh, uh, robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. These charlatans were religious imposters, and they, they, but they loved the position and the prestige and the preeminence that comes from the office. They loved to be recognized and afforded respect 
They paraded in long, flowing robes, white robes that reached down to the ground. Now, the significance of that was you could never do a day's work in a long robe. So these men were living off the people and didn't have to work for a living. They were content to to live off um, uh, what other people gave them. They never worked a day in their lives. They loved to be greeted in the marketplace, to be recognized as a religious celebrity, to be called rabbi or teacher. They loved to occupy the best seats in the synagogue. They sat facing the congregation, not just to keep an eye on the congregation, but that the congregation could see them. And when invited for a meal, they loved to be at the top table uh, so that they would have that position of honor. It was customary to have at least one or two scribes at every function to give that party a, a bit of kudos. These scribes loved all the attention and all the adulation. They loved to uh, strut their stuff. They loved to be seen uh, in order to be esteemed by the people. They were ecclesiastical peacocks who loved to display their feathers in public. They were proud of their position. They were proud of their influence. They were proud of their standing. There was a complete lack of humility in these men. That, says Jesus, is a mark of a religious imposter. Because the true Christian is always characterized by humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, humility is the chief of all Christian graces. It is the hallmark of the true child of God. If you want to know if somebody's genuinely a Christian, you look for the hallmark of humility. In fact, humility is the essence of the Christian position. Christian position is that I have no confidence in myself and I place my absolute confidence in Christ. The greatest men of God in the history of the church have always been the most humble men of God. A a proud Christian is as big a contradiction as a humble devil. So religious charlatans um, lack humility. They are interested in their reputation and their appearance and what people think. So preachers who prance around the stage in $4,000 suits and drip with gold and have their teeth teeth bleached to a glistening white, who travel around in Bentleys and Rolls Royces and, um, and fly around the world in private jets. I'm suspicious of people like that. People who are reluctant to have others occupy their pulpits, who like to be at the front themselves. I'm suspicious of preachers who insist on titles Because respect is something that you either have or you don't have. Paul says, esteem them highly for their work's sake. And I started to preach. Uh, An older minister came to me and he said, Stephen, just a little tip. He says, you see when you're away on holidays, always invite uh, a worse preacher to preach than yourself. So that when you come back to say, oh, well, there's nobody like our man. There's something wrong with that kind of attitude. You remember what John said about Diotrephes in 3 John verse 9. He loves the preeminence. Or as NIV has it, he loves to be first. That's the mark of a a religious charlatan, a man who wants the position, the standing, a man who flaunts himself. Beware of that. Bernard of Clairvaux in the Middle Ages said, it's not a great thing to be humble when you're low, but to be humble when you're high, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. 
So you can identify a religious charlatan by a defective theology, a lack of humility, and thirdly, an absence of integrity. Look at verse 47, who devour widows' houses. My widows were one of the most vulnerable groups in, in society. In days before there was any social security net um, uh, uh, to provide um, for the destitute, widows were often driven either into second unhappy marriages or worse into prostitution or into slavery. That's why in the New Testament there's so much emphasis about caring for widows and orphans. Without a male provider, these widows were exposed to the ravages of a society which frowned on women working. Now, these religious fraudsters, says Jesus, took advantage of the mo- this most vulnerable group in society. They devour widows' houses. Now, there are a couple of ways, I suppose, of understanding that. Perhaps when the husband was ill, they, they would, uh, and unable to work, they would go into the widow's house, or into the person's house, provide for them while the husband was ill, and uh, in return they would expect the house to be signed over to them so that when the husband died, the widow would be left without any property. Or perhaps they're um, so ingratiating uh, themselves to the widow with uh, their winsome um, um, wormy ways that they get the widow to sign over the house so that when the widow dies, uh, the children are left with, with nothing. Or perhaps they were forced to sign over the houses in return for charitable help. We, we can't be exactly sure, but in some way, these religious teachers were using their position to take advantage of the most vulnerable people in society. They lacked personal integrity. They used their position for personal advantage. Paul warns Timothy about such people, and he says they are the kind of people who worm themselves into homes to get control over weak-willed women. That lack of personal integrity, exploiting others for you to, in order to indulge yourself, is the mark of a religious charlatan. When you hear of people using their position uh, to, to gain advantage over vulnerable people, that's a warning bell. And it may be at the time of the Reformation when Tretzel, who uh, so angered Luther, was going round to gather up money for the building of St. Peter's in Rome uh, and said that the moment a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It may be faith healers who are selling little bottles of water for $50 a pop over the television, or pedophile priests or predator pastors taking advantage of the vulnerable in society. It stinks, and it identifies a a, a religious imposter. You think of who are the most vulnerable in our society today? Children. And for pedophiles to uh, prey on children is one of the, the, the worst things imaginable, but for religious fraudsters to use their position to give them access to children is diabolical. So here, how can you tell then uh, that you, how can you spot a religious a fraudster, a religious charlatan, a defective theology, a lack of humility, an absence of integrity, and then thirdly, fourthly, sorry, they act 
hypocritically. Look at verse 47 again. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. The NIV says, for a show, they make lengthy prayers. That word pretense or show is the word that's used. Do you remember when uh, Paul was on the ship that was about to be um, um, shipwrecked and the sailors uh, lower the lifeboat with the pretense that they're lowering, lowering the anchor? That's, that's the word there, uh, or the word here. They, they were pretending. They were acting out of part in order to deceive others. The word hypocrite in both the Greek language and the English language comes from the word actor. That's what a hypocrite is. It's someone who acts or plays a part, someone who pretends, someone who puts on a performance. They want an audience, and it's the audience that they're seeking to impress. Now, these religious leaders were hypocrites. They prayed long, flowing, lengthy prayers in order to impress others. They were supposed to be coming to God in prayer, but instead they were putting on a performance for all who could see and hear them. They wanted to do well. They wanted to make an impression. They were thinking of the, wor- uh, the impression that their words were making uh, on-, on others for all who could see and hear them. And that's the mark of a hypocrite, an imposter, a charlatan, showmanship. More interested in, his stand, interested in his standing before people than his standing before God. That's the fourth and final identifying mark of the religious fraudster. He's a showman. He wants people to think well of him. His piety and his religious duties are undertaking to enhance his reputation. He prays these long, flowing, flowery prayers so that people will put their hands in front of them and say, my, isn't he in touch with God? Isn't he close to God? John Milton says that, uh, that hypocrisy is the only evil that walks invisible. You can't, you can't see hypocrisy, but you can smell it. You smell it. You know when people are, are genuine. You know when they're acting out of a, a desire to, to advance themselves rather than to have communion with God. They love the sound of their own voice. Beware of the glitzy, the showy, the flash harries when it comes to ministry and leadership. The man who loves to be congratulated and commended. The man who is prepared to as we were thinking in our studies in James, to talk others down in order to lift himself up. These are the marks of a a religious fraudster, a charlatan, who is only in ministry for what he himself gets out of it. So here are the, the marks that Jesus lists in describing the scribes that are indicators to us of a religious fraudster a defective theology, you you need to ask yourself, what do they believe? Particularly, what do they believe about Christ? A lack of humility. Are they self-promoting? Are they strutting their stuff? An absence of integrity? Do they pray on other people? Do they take advantage of other people? And they act hypocritically. There's no sincerity. There's there's no, no depth behind that saccharine smile. We need to be wise. We need be careful not to be swept away by this kind of thing. Remember the verses that Alex was preaching on last week in 1 John 4 and verse 1? 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And here Jesus gives us some identifying marks to help us in that process of testing theology, humility, integrity, and hypocrisy. Now, just to conclude, I want you to notice the warning there at the end of verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation. Do you see that? They will receive the greater condemnation. The NIV says, such men will be punished most severely. The authorized version says, uh, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, that's significant. In fact, it's shocking because it's telling us that these servants of God ended up in hell. That's shocking, isn't it? Pastors in hell. That's possible. Preachers in hell. That's possible. Secondly, these are amazing words because it tells us there are degrees of punishment in hell. These men will receive the greater condemnation. They will be punished most severely. Some sins are more heinous than others, and some sins will receive the greater condemnation. And then lastly, that phrase is startling and shocking because it tells us that one of the most serious sins is sin against the light. These scribes, yes, they were hypocrites. Yes, they were charlatans. Yes, they lacked integrity. But they weren't living open, immoral lives. They weren't homosexuals. They weren't adulterers. They were trying to live their lives in the light of the law of God, and yet they received a greater condemnation. Why? Because with all their privilege, they knew the law, but they didn't um, live by the law. It didn't have an effect upon them. It wasn't implanted in their hearts, and so a greater condemnation awaited them. Because they had more light, they received a greater condemnation. And let me, in conclusion, just apply this. I don't think I'm speaking to this evening to any raw pagans um, who know nothing of the gospel. I don't think I'm preaching to any um, flagrant sinners who are indulging the flesh in, in ways that would startle us or shock us. I don't think I'm speaking to anybody like that. I'm speaking to people who probably, if I asked you to press the gospel for me, you could do that, that God is holy, that man is sinful, that God so loved the world, He sent His Son into the world to remedy this, this problem, and that we personally need to repent and believe. And you, you, could, you could come up here and you could preach that. You could tell people that message, but you're still not saved. You personally haven't embraced that yourself. And by rejecting the light, you're sinning against the light, and your very familiarity with the gospel is increasing your condemnation. And if you don't believe, the day will come when you will curse your parents for ever taking time to teach you the Word of God. You will curse Balamina Baptist Church for ever faithfully instructing you in the Word of God. You will curse Stephen Curry 
her daring to preach the need of repentance and faith and personal salvation in, in Jesus Christ. You'll, you'll curse all of those things because your very sin against the light will lead to a greater condemnation. Matthew Henry says, those that perish with the gospel ringing in their ears perish with a vengeance. And I want to urge you, in conclusion, don't be like these, these scribes in all their hypocrisy, but come to Jesus and cling to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord because He is the only one who can change you from the inside out and can bring you safely into heaven. Listen to the words of Jesus. They will receive the greater condemnation. Who? The scribes. Such men, NIV, will be punished most severely. Who? The scribes. The same will receive greater damnation. Who are those that receive the greater damnation? The teachers of the law. That's sobering. Let's apply that our hearts. Amen.